You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. They partnered with CISA in order to um, kind of put on a tabletop exercise that not only covers what they do um, within the NFL to manage particular incidents, but also to understand what private sector and public sector entities in the location of their, their event, how they manage an incident. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Joseph Oregon, he is Chief of Cybersecurity for CISA in Area Region 9. We are discussing the recent tabletop exercise that CISA conducted with the National Football League. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. All right, Joe, before we get into our stories here, we've got a couple little items of follow-up. What do you got for us? Yes, first I wanted to say thank you to Tiffany for stopping by the booth at Grace Hopper. Uh, she did not know who I was until I said my name. And <laughs> once I told her who I was, it was the first time somebody actually said, oh, it's you. And never <laughs> did, had that happen before. Did she recognize life. your voice? She did not. Oh, uh, okay. That that hasn't happened yet. Okay. But once I said my name, uh, she was looking at the CyberWire swag that you sent me down with. And, okay. Uh, she's, oh, I love these shows. I'm like, well, what's your favorite one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, did she say caveat with Ben Yellen? No, she said it was Hacking Humans, actually. <laughs> okay, very so good. So I was like, ah, oh, that's a very good. And, <laughs> right. Right? That's the ding, 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 ding. ding. <laughs> right, right very good. Very good. So uh, thank you, Tiffany, for stopping by. It was uh, the highlight of my event. Oh, that's there. nice. That's uh, nice. Also want to thank Jason. Uh, Jason made a recommendation for Microsoft Power Toys uh, because he heard me complaining that I'm not entering a Bitcoin address to see if anybody's been scammed from an image. Oh, right? okay. So he recommended Power Toys, which will let you uh, snap a picture of an image on your screen and it will convert it to text. Hmm. It does a whole mess of other things too. Some really cool stuff. So, uh, if you're if you're a Windows user, I recommend checking it out. Is it sort of a, a utility program that has a lot of different functionality? It is. Okay. It is. Yeah. Uh, um, there was there was something similar that Microsoft had years ago. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the things it did was turn your um, uh, give you in the command prompt to give you gave you an ls command that was very similar to a Linux ls command. Huh. Okay. Um, but I can't remember what that was called, but it, they don't make it anymore. They don't distribute it. <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, Rory wrote in about my uh, our tinfoil hat discussion a couple of weeks ago where I was talking about uh, the, my car every time I drive by the dealership. Right. I get an email. Uh, and he said well, they could be using an automated license plate reader that looks up your license plate. You don't have to have anything in the car. Oh. Uh, but then he says, it seems that it's much less expensive just to be sending people emails who've bought cars from you in the past. <laughs> Probably a coincidence with Rory Right, says. right. So I'm going to take my tinfoil hat off and, and go with the Occam's razor explanation. Okay, well, <laughs> say, that makes sense. That's probably correct. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks to everyone who wrote in to us. Of course, we would love to hear from you. Uh, it's hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? Dave? We have conducted a cybersecurity survey at the Information Security Institute. Oh, And I want to talk about that survey. All right. Uh, this was con- commissioned by the Maryland Cybersecurity Council, and we had some funding from the National Cryptologic Foundation as well as uh, ISI, the Information Security Institute. Okay. This is a pilot study. 
All right. Which, uh, in other words, what we're what we're hoping on, uh, what we're hoping comes out of this is another more formalized study. I see. Uh, because we conducted this survey using Amazon's MTurk. Are you familiar with MTurk? The Mechanical Turk. Mechanical Turk. Yep. Right. But they yep. call it MTurk now. Oh, well, that house, how streamlined. That's right. Yeah. They have. Uh, that's the marketing <laughs> okay. guys. I'm sure there's some some marketing guy that got a big raise for that. Right. Right. Um, so. The way this works is people sign up on MTurk for to be workers, and then people sign up to be requesters. And you can send a request for some human intelligence task or a hit, as they call it, okay, uh, out to the workers. And then the workers get paid some amount of money for doing it. And this is actually pretty common for doing surveys like this. Okay. Uh, one of the things that we were able to do was limit the audience or the respondent list to Maryland residents over the age of 18. Hmm. And we got 549 valid responses okay. back. Uh, some of the interesting findings from this survey is that two-thirds of people, 66, 67%, said they had had some form of security awareness training in the past year. Okay. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, does that mean that everybody else is getting targeted <laughs> Everybody else is falling for these falling for these scams. I don't want to say falling for the scams, but getting getting uh, tricked by these scams is in that other thirty three percent. Probably not. No, but um, I would say they're at a disadvantage. Probably, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree they're at a disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, we asked about people's data backups, how they back up their data. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one interesting piece of information that came out of this. Uh, there's a small portion of people that say they don't back up their data. Some some people say they they send it off site, but 39% of people say they use a cloud service like like OneDrive or Google Drive or Carbonite or something like that. Right. Uh, but when we asked how frequently they back up, only 16% of people said that they back up continuously. Hmm. Which is interesting, I think, because if you're using OneDrive or Google Drive, or I, I'm not sure how Carbonite works, but I, I think it backs up. It's, their literature says they back up continuously. Whenever hmm. a file changes, that file gets uploaded to the uh, to the storage provider. Okay. So I think there's some kind of technical misunderstanding. Yeah, on, I mean, on a fundamental I, level. That's here. interesting because, like, I use uh, Time Machine, which is Apple's built-in right. backup utility, mm-hmm. um, and it probably backs up. Two or three times an hour, I'd say. It runs this little routine to— That's probably as close—I'd I'd call that continuous. Well, that was my question. Would you—so, yeah. So, would you consider that to be continuously? Yeah. Okay. I would consider that to be continuous. Now— I would. Here's the thing. When we do this other—the the next survey, the follow-on survey, we're going to be a little more clear in our questions. Okay. Right? I'm, I'm hoping—what I'm really hoping, Dave, is that we can do interviews with people. Oh. So, we can suss this out. Okay. And, and get better, finer, granular answers. Right. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know what this looks like, but mm-hmm. that's really what we're hoping. Hmm. Uh, 90% of respondents said that they had verified their backups within the past year. Hmm. I'm, I'm a little dubious of that claim. Well, I, I guess part of me <laughs> wonders if uh, if the verification was needing to go to their backups because something bad had happened. Right. You know, right? You know, not just checking... For the sake of checking, but it's like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right? I hope these backups work. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So that hmm. That does seem high to me, but uh if it's true, I'm that's a good number. Right. Yeah. I would I would imagine that uh, a lot of those people are people who use those uh online services and just rely on them for storage. Yeah. And that could be considered a back I use them and I consider it one of my forms of backup. Mm. Um the problem with it is that if you fall victim to ransomware, a lot of times those are also encrypted as well. Right. Um, now, I don't know what, since I've never fallen for ransomware, I never had to go through this process myself. I don't know what the recovery options are from the cloud provider. They might mm. be good. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we asked some knowledge-based questions. So, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on a soapbox here. The very <laughs> first one is I asked, what is the definition of uh, social engineering in an information security context. Okay. 25% of the respondents got it right. There were four possible options plus an I don't know. So... Well, hmm, okay. Is, is I don't know considered wrong? 
I, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say yes. They, they did okay. not get it correct. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Only, only 25% of people got this right. This points to one of my biggest pet peeves in all of uh, what we do here, and that's the jargon. Uh, uh, this, I don't think this is a good term. I don't think social engineering is a good term. Uh, I think it brings to mind something else. It doesn't. It's not really descriptive. Yeah. You have to be uh, in the information security environment or at least familiar with it or adjacent enough to it to know that social engineering is essentially scamming people. What would you call it? What would you prefer it be called? That's an excellent question, Dave. I've complained about this so long, I should have an answer to that question, but I don't. I see. Next week, I'll try to have an answer with that. Uh, hey, you know what? Let's solicit <laughs> listener input here. Instead oh, of calling nice. it social engineering, nice what should you call pivot, it? Joe. Nice Online nice. scams. Offload it. Offload it onto our listeners. I oh, love they it. they love doing this stuff, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Joe has asked me for something. Okay. Uh, yeah. Spear phishing. About 50% of people, 49% knew what spear phishing was. Okay. Uh, phishing, 61% of people knew what that was. What's interesting is this is the only question we asked that lines up pretty much directly with one of the proof point questions. Okay. From uh, the last time I talked about the proof point state of the fish report. Right. Uh, and they said 58% of people knew what fishing was. So we're pretty close there. 61, 58. It's only three points of difference. Yeah. Right. So that gives me some confidence in, uh, in what we collected here. Here's the biggest surprise. 70% of people knew what multi-factor authentication was. Hmm. Okay. Which is great. That is great. Uh, we asked some cybersecurity hygiene questions. We asked, where do you use multi-factor authentication? And we let people uh, choose one. And some people said, 42% said they use it on their important accounts. 25% of people said they use it on most accounts. And 23% said they use it wherever it's offered. Okay. So, uh, I don't know how I feel about this one. I mean, I'm okay if you only use it to protect your your important accounts. Right. There are accounts I don't use multi-factor authentication on. Me too. Right. So, I mean, it, what happens if I lose access to that account? I can call that company and and say I've lost access to the account. Somebody has changed. Somebody's changed my password. Right. Uh, and then you know maybe I'll if it's somebody I pay, I'll just stop paying them. Yeah. Create a new account. Yeah. Not a big deal. Right. It's not. It's not a big loss. Part of um, your risk assessment, your part personal of my risk, risk assessment, assessment. Exactly. Now, yeah. if it's my bank <laughs> where I'm going to lose money, right? Yeah, that's a different a different risk. That's a different level of risk. That's a different level of misery. Should something go wrong, for so, me, the, there are accounts that I consider to be disposable. You know, right. like one and done. Yep. Or I will rarely interact with this organization, and I know it. Right. And they don't have any of my financial information or anything like that. And and for those sorts of things. I hate to say it, but the the extra sort of pain in the butt that multi-factor can be right. makes me not do it because yeah. in my risk assessment, it's not risky enough to make it worth the extra steps. Streaming Whereas, services are a great example of this. Mm, right. Interesting. So if I'm if I'm trying to log in on my on my television. <laughs> right. right. Oh boy. <laughs> am, am I gonna walk up and put my YubiKey in the back of the TV's USB yeah. drive and hope that it works? Yeah. Hope that that Hope the thing goes, okay, put, you know, let's set up a UB. No. Right. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to go so far as to enter a code. I'm just going to um, to use a pretty good password. Yeah. One that I can still enter with a click, 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 click. I hate right. that. Right. Um, you know, I'll tell you, if, if there are anybody from a streaming service listening, some of you guys are doing it right where you have... You take a picture with your phone, and you can log in on your phone, and some of you guys are doing it wrong. <laughs> Looking at you, Disney, um, you're not doing it right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a hard time and say one of the nice things about being on uh, Planet Macintosh <laughs> is that uh, if you were using, like, an Apple TV, you can actually use the keyboard built into your phone to enter those sorts of passwords. So you don't have to click, click, click around. You can actually use a, yeah, a virtual well, keyboard. That, that, so. is, that is one of the big advantages <laughs> with going with Apple is the user experience is top-notch. I, right. I can't dispute right. that. Right. It is a great user experience if you're a cult member. Um, <laughs> no, it is, seriously, it's a good user experience, and that's, that's always been the focus of the company. Yeah. Um, what else? What form of multi-factor authentication do you use? This was check all the apply. Only uh, 7.5% of people said they're using a hardware token, like a YubiKey. Hmm. Uh, we've seen that in other reports be higher. Yeah. So I think we've seen it up to like 11%. I don't know if we're outside of the margin of error here. Probably not. Yeah. But um, it, it doesn't shock me because there's a cost associated with it. 
Mm-hmm. Use a multi-factor authentication uh, device of some kind. Uh, how do you choose your password? 20% of people said they use the same password for most of their accounts, and 10% of people said they use their same password for all of their accounts. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't. Now, these were not mutually exclusive. They could have selected both, but um, that means at least 20% of these people are just asking for credential stuffing attacks. Right. Uh, that is a terrible, terrible uh way to go about your password management. Yeah. Uh, 26% said they use long and complex passwords. And then we followed on and said, how do you remember your passwords? And 28% said they use a password manager, which kind of goes in line with the 26% who use long and complex passwords. <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand, right? right. If you're using a password <laughs> manager. Why not use the feature of the right. password manager that generates the great account, the great right. passwords? And one makes the other tenable, you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 29% said they write their passwords down. Okay. I'm I'm okay with that yeah, for a lot of things. Uh, you know, don't leave it out in the open. Keep it in a notebook. But nobody is going to break into your computer and steal your physical notebook sitting next to your computer. Right. That's right. very unlikely. It is. <laughs> yeah. They break into your house. That's a different issue. Yeah. Uh, 41% say they remember them, which means that that's how they, um, that that's, they're remembering all their passwords. They're probably using weak passwords. Just memorizing yep. them. Yeah. They, they. I wonder how many of them have what they believe is a brilliant system of variation on their passwords that is, in reality, very easy for any type of automation to unpack and and break. Uh, (laughs) Of that 41%, I'll bet it's close to 100%. Yeah, sadly. What else did you guys look at? So we looked at victimization as well, which was kind of a... a, a, We we were surprised, but not... Terribly surprised. 20% of people who responded say that they've been some kind of victim of ransomware. Hmm. Uh, 45%, this is this is one of the shocking features of the report, of the data. 45% said that their information had been breached. And 38% said that their information had not been breached. And 17% said they didn't know. Hmm. So 17 plus 38 is 55% of people. And that is 55% of people who are probably wrong. Yeah. Because that should be 100%. Right. Uh, so this is a significant finding from this report that people just don't understand. Uh, uh, one in two people, uh, uh, pretty close to one in two people, do not understand that their data is out there and available. Mm-hmm. And it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we have to get the message out about. Yeah, it's interesting. We asked people uh, if, we asked respondents if, They've lost any money due to an online scam. 23% of people said they had lost money to an online scam, hmm. which is a big number. We were surprised by how large that number was. And when we asked them how much number, how, how much number, how much money they had lost, yeah. those numbers were also shocking. We had two people that said they lost $100,000. Wow. Now, those data points might not be accurate, but they are within the ballpark. Hmm. Uh, you know, we were... Uh, We'll have a story coming up soon where we're talking to somebody about losses in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right, right. This is not unheard of. Mm -hmm. The average loss, uh, and just by average, I mean mean, was uh, about $3,000. And if you took out the two outliers, we're still around $1,500 for an average loss. Hmm. There were nine respondents who claimed to have lost uh, tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. So uh, you do the, uh, the naive calculation and extrapolate that out to the, the the rest of the population of Maryland, and you're looking at a total loss of around $2.1 billion. Hmm. Now, granted, that's a naive calculation, right? Uh, but it uses a lower number. Hmm. So what are we going to do next? We're going to uh, do a more formal study with hopefully more respondents. I'd like to get up up around 1,000 to 2,000 people uh, queried for this this survey. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to distribute the uh, the sampling across the state a little more evenly. We had some overrepresentation from some areas like Western Maryland. Right. Um, I would like I would like to get uh, a, you know a, a, a more random sample, and I'd like to ask some some follow on questions. And I'd really like to be uh, to do this in the form of interviews. Uh, what somehow. do you ultimately hope happens with this? Is are is this is this information that you're gathering to then try to to take to policymakers yes. or that's an excellent question, Dave. Why are we doing this? <laughs> why, why spend all this money? That's exactly what we want to do. We want to take it to policymakers and, and have them uh, work on some kind of public education campaign. Okay, that's what's got to happen here. The fact that 
that more than half the people in this state don't know that their data is out there and been breached. That's a problem. Yeah. Uh, the fact that 25% of the people who responded to our survey uh, said that they had been the victim of some scam where they lost money. That's another problem. Hmm. That th- Those are the two biggest problems that are made evident here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really what I would like to see uh, a campaign on. Those, those are the two most impactful things, I think. All right. Well, interesting results, certainly. I mean, even for just a pilot study, that's some really interesting data in there. Yeah, we'll have uh, we'll have a paper out, and um, I think we're doing a uh, a talk or a, a panel talk at the Cyber Maryland conference in December. Okay, all right, terrific. All right, well, my story this week comes from the folks over at CNBC. This is uh, an article written by Greg Iacurci. Um, and it's titled, How This 77-Year-Old Widow Lost $661,000 in a Common Tech Scam. See, $100,000 isn't that much. Yeah. She said, I realized I had been defrauded of everything. Oh, God, this is um, heartbreaking. This is a, a woman named Marjorie Bloom. Um, she had uh, wired... Well, let, let me back up and, and just describe what had happened. Right. Um, she had uh, something pop up on her screen, tech mm-hmm. support scam, a, a type of thing we've talked about here many times. Right. Microsoft uh, needs to get in touch with you right away because there's a problem on your computer. Please call us right now. Your computer won't work until you call us right now. I described this recently that this happened to my father on his Chromebook. Yes. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is it's not a Microsoft machine. It's not. But, um, they don't care. They'll no. put it on a Chromebook, and, and when somebody calls, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is Microsoft. Oh, yeah, we do the Chromebook. That's right. So um, uh, Mrs. Bloom, who is 77 years old, she's a widow, uh, she called and spoke to the person at Microsoft Tech Support, um, who was, of course, very friendly and started asking her questions about things and was telling her all about the, the problems with her computer and uh, this person said that by looking on her computer, he could see that uh, there was a pending financial transfer, mm. and the only way to protect herself against this transfer is to get that money out of the account. Uh, and give it to me for safekeeping, right? Well, he actually went even farther than that. He connected her with a, and I'm using big old air quotes here. Right. A fraud investigator at her bank. Uh huh. So in the con- source, in the the course of the conversation, he had asked her who she banks with. She told him. Uh, he said, "Oh, good news! I can transfer you to that person. Right. Put her on hold. It doesn't matter what bank you say. That's they'll right. transfer you to that bank's uh, <laughs> fraud investigation. That's right. Right. That's right. You can even make a bank up, and they'll they'll transfer you That's to right. Joe's new bank." Of first Joe's Capital Bank of Maryland. Yeah, good news. I have one of their fraud investigators right, right here on my speed dial. So uh, transferred over to her, or to uh, rather to the um, the person claiming to be someone from her bank, uh, and that again scammer verified that uh, sure enough there was uh, pending transfers here, and the only way that uh, they could save her from losing this money was to move it quickly. Uh, and also told her that if she told anyone, including any of her three children, mm. that could compromise their efforts. <laughs> right? Uh, the isolation, um, the isolation play. Right, right, exactly. So um, that's what she did. And uh, long and short of it is, she ended up uh, transferring over $661,000. Oh my gosh. Which was her nest egg. Yep. Um, she, uh, was a professional. She, she had her own career. Um, so, uh, she's not destitute now. She still, she has social security. She still has, you know, she has some other investments, but, um, she's really heartbroken. She said that, um, you know, she used to enjoy traveling and she was hoping of passing on this nest egg to her children. And and that's not going to happen now. She can't travel she can't pass it on. Um, you know, she's not out of her home. She she has she still can put food on the table, right? Um, but uh, but her quality of life has been significantly impacted. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a couple of other sort of interesting details about this. Uh, she sued the bank. She did. She did. 
she sued the bank and uh, claiming that there should have been enough red flags, which was going on here, money being transferred, large amounts of money from a senior person being transferred overseas in the ways that it was done, that the bank employees should have been trained to have this be a red flag. Right. Uh, and put a stop to it. Yeah, yeah. And how, how did that lawsuit turn out? The bank settled. The bank settled? Yep. Okay. So we don't know how much she got, but the bank did settle. Uh, actually, one of the claims got dismissed. Uh, and So there are two claims that she had against the bank, and I don't remember specifically what they were about, but one of them got dismissed, and then the other one, uh, the bank did settle. So uh, we, I don't know to what degree was she made whole. I be very surprised if she got everything back. Right, but. and I'll, I'd also be very surprised if she was allowed to talk about how much she got back. Yeah. Um, she says, in the article here, there's a headline that says, somebody should have asked. Mm. You know, I, I think, I don't know if this needs to be regulatory, but it seems to me like banks would be operating in their own interests if when somebody, they, they just put some kind of monitoring system right, so that when... Somebody started transferring money, large amounts of money out, and they're going to banks overseas. There's a phone call. Mm-hmm. There's a phone call that's being made. And nothing happens. That bank doesn't leave until they talk to the customer and they say to the customer, I need you to come in here. Right. In order for you to do this, you're going to have to come in here. Right. And we're going to have to talk about it. And you're going to have to tell us why you're transferring your own money. Yeah. Um, well, and this article goes into that too. By the way, I should say that I did, I misspoke a little bit. I oversimplified okay. the story here. The initial transfer of the money out of her bank account, and she lives in Maryland near us. Okay. The initial transfer went to a bank in New York. New York. Okay. So they, the scammers, using the information they had gathered from her computer, set up a bank account in her name. In New York. Okay, so it was going to a bank, a fraudulent bank account in her name. Right. So okay, so now what about the bank in New York that allowed a fraudulent account to be created in her name? That bank doesn't exist anymore, and for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, that, so that, it would seem. <laughs> right, right. That bank went out of business. Um, but you, you, so you could see how that could lower some of the red flags for the transfer. If you're transferring money from you to you, right, that could not that could seem, just go right through the yeah, go right through any filters. Right, right. But this article also points out that you know there are banking regulations. There's know your customer rules, um, things like that. But when it comes to these electronic wire transfers, it's still a part of the banking industry that it's hard to claw things back. Right. And I don't understand why. I mean, there must be a practical reason for it. And, and if someone out there is in the banking industry and can explain it to us, uh, perhaps it's just as simple as they don't want to introduce friction to, you know, a system that's working 99.9% of the time. Or maybe they don't want, they're trying to prevent something like the double spend problem. You know, yeah. You get your get your money back after fraudulent, fraudulently. Right, right. Perhaps it would cause more problems than it solves. Right. I don't know. But yeah, we, yeah, we're not bankers. Sure seems like we could do better than... We are doing now, particularly when we see folks having these sorts of problems. So it's really a heartbreaking story. I mean, I, I suppose it's good that well, several good things here. I mean, she she's not destitute. Right. Seems as though she got something back from the bank, yep. and we'll never know what that is. And she's sharing her story. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, Marjorie, thank you very much for sharing your story. I don't know if you ever you'll ever hear this, but this is important to do. This is something I say frequently. Uh, You're not the only person that falls for this. You're not the only person that can fall for this. Yeah. In fact, the people that can fall for this is everybody. There's something out there that works on everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been saying that since, since we started this show. And one of the things I told myself I would never say is I would never fall for any of these things. Right. (laughs) Uh, in fact, what I did was the opposite. And I've even identified this in, in the, in this podcast of things that would work on me. Yeah. Things that have that there's there's something that would work on me. Yeah, nobody's so, immune. Yeah, nobody's immune. Right. the The problem here is that when you get this alert coming up on your on your uh, computer, and then you call the number, and then they say, "Oh, there's also a 
a financial transaction happening at your bank and they transfer you to somebody else who goes, oh yes, now you're panicking mm-hmm. and you're not thinking clearly. And that's what their objective is. Their objective is to scare the bejesus out of you. <laughs> that's right. So that you do whatever they say. Yeah. Um, they use the term of art in here, something with your amygdala. They they refer to like short-circuiting your amygdala, which is the right. part of your brain that handles rational thought. No, no. The the, the amygdala is is not, the amygdala is down at the base of your brain. Oh, so it's the opposite of it's that. It's the opposite of that. So they're, they're stimulating your amygdala. your amygdala. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. They're, uh, they're, the amygdala is called, the, it's called cognitive narrowing is what they're trying to induce. Okay. And what happens is you get, you perceive a threat and immediately your uh, your amygdala fires off and it starts up the fight or flight response that dumps adrenaline into your bloodstream or signals your adrenal glands to dump adrenaline into your bloodstream. Yeah. You'll actually start breathing heavier and your heart will race. Uh-huh. That's from the amygdala. Uh-huh. And the amygdala is actually really, really, really fast and really, really, really good at processing threats. Mm-hmm. If that threat is a bear in the woods, that's excellent. <laughs> right? Right. Because it, it says, okay, I'm going to run away from this bear. Yeah. And that's why we've lived as long as we have as a species. But when somebody scares you and says, your, your money's about to go away, the same thing happens. Mm. And you need to just take a breath, calm down, and step back. And so, wait a minute. This isn't how this works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult to do when you're in that situation, when you're in that condition. Yeah. Um, you know, the best thing to do in any of these situations is hang up and directly call your bank. And go, look, there's somebody trying to scam me out of money. Lock my accounts down, please. Right. Call your bank at the number that you know is good. Do not call the bank on any number that anybody on an inbound phone call gives you. Right. Look up the number and call it. Right. All right. Well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Uh, this is this article is particularly good in the amount of details that it shares here. Yeah, it's Very nice. often these sorts of uh, reporting on scams are just kind of at the surface levels, but this goes into some depth. So yeah, Marjorie put a lot of time into giving her, sharing her story here. Yeah. So I would recommend you, uh, you check it out. This is a good one to sort of spread around with your friends and loved ones too, because there's a, a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Damien. Uh, the subject of this email is just attention, and I'm just going to let you read it because it's fantastic. All right. It says, Hello, greetings from the Federal Reserve Bank of USA. I am Mr. Jerome H. Powell from the Federal Reserve Bank of USA. I'm here to deliver your ATM card of 16.7 USD, which has been in our office since last week. Dave. Yeah. You missed a very important word there. What I, oh? 16.7 million USD. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> to deliver your ATM card of 16.7 million USD, which has been in our office since last week. And there's one man that came to my office and said, you are dead. <laughs> that he's your next of kin. He came to claim your ATM card from us. And I said, no, that I will text you first and confirm that you are dead. <laughs> What? Because, Are you dead? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Phew. Right. Uh, all right. Uh, logic. Because the man is still on my office right now, keeps saying that you are dead, that he wanted to claim your ATM card from us. So if you know that you are not dead, kindly get back to me <laughs> with your full information you so that, that I can confirm your ATM card immediately with your information like these. And then okay. it asks for full name, home address, <laughs> ID card, occupation, right. cell number, and country. Uh, this is like an elementary school, and the teacher would say, everybody who's not here, raise your hand. Right. right? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this was great. Uh, when Damien sent this along, he actually sent forwarded the email that he received, and the all the emails this was sent to were just in the CC field. Mm. And they all started with a D. Uh-huh. And Damien postulated maybe the the spammer only had enough money to uh, pay for the letter D for the mailing list. <laughs> right, right. I think I think what's <laughs> happening is that that's just one of many emails that went out. Mm-hmm. Damien, <laughs> it's just one long run on sentence. It is. I mean, that's it's that's what's, that's another great thing about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it correct. Jerome Powell is currently the head of the of the Federal Reserve Bank. So, so they got that bit of attention to detail right. right. But that's punctuation that's is still a challenge. Yeah, not their strong suit. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you, Damien, for sending that in. And again, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hackinghumans at n2k.com. We were talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from Nobefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. More than 10 million highly trained Nobefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. Nobefore's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit nobefore.com slash products slash fish ER plus to learn more. That's nobefore.com slash products slash fish ER plus. And we thank Nobefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Oregon. He is the chief of cybersecurity for CISA in their area region 9. Uh, And our conversation focuses on a recent tabletop exercise that CISA had with the NFL about protecting the Super Bowl. Here's my conversation with Joseph Oregon. So I think as we look at it, um, you know, and and as we kind of describe, you know, some of the needs for a tabletop exercise, and and I I think if if I can, I'm just going to kind of talk through just a little bit of what is a tabletop exercise so you can kind of see the importance um, and the and the value that it adds to our partners like the NFL and other and, and other organizations um, around the United States. So um, a tabletop exercise, in a nutshell, it's an informational kind of a discussion-based walkthrough of different scenarios, and they're created or customized by us, by CISA, to help stakeholders address their roles and responsibilities during a specific incident. So as an example, we may help stakeholders by creating a scenario which helps them walk through how they would respond to a ransomware incident or maybe even an incident response plan or a physical incident at their location. So I take a moment just to, to highlight that these that, um that this resource and the fact that CESA's regional offices and our headquarter elements have decided or have dedicated professionals um, who help craft tabletop exercises for partners is for free, right? And something that a lot of organizations, whether they're public or private, kind of leverage um, because it comes with a lot of benefits. We have an actual team that um, will work with organizations that will actually deploy out to a location, help them walk through the scenario, um, we try to look at it from a humble approach. So where we we help facilitate, but we actually um, we take our cues from those partners. So NFL is one of such partners who reached out to CISA. Um, and because of their involvement with the Super Bowl and 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 other and various events, um, they've partnered with CISA in order to um, kind of put on a tabletop exercise that not only covers what they do um, within the NFL to manage particular incidents, but also to understand what um, private sector and public sector entities in the location of their, their event, how they manage an incident. So really it's this huge collaboration um, as an example of, of, of private and public sector entities that are coming together and walking through a um, you know this tabletop exercise and to your initial point, um, David, it's w- with regards to you know why you know why did they approach CISA and it's more so as looking at as a collaborative um, a collaborative relationship, right? They're they're they they know that we um, that we are a government you know that we are a government agency and that's uh, that's the operational lead for federal cybersecurity and national coordination for 
critical infrastructure, security, and resilience, knowing that they want to make sure that, you know, they're kind of checking the boxes as well and, and kind of understand the processes from a federal government perspective. Um, and then, so they reach out and um, they work with us um, and work with the local partners there to kind of get involved and, and, and provide that assistance or not assistance rather, but provide that awareness of, of the events and what they look for as it pertains to security and, and um, security scenarios that they can walk through with both public and private sector. What sort of insights can you share with us about uh, how this tabletop proceeded? You know, I, I think it's what's important is that as, as we kind of look at it, um, we did this exercise because we kind of like share a responsibility to secure a large event. Right. Um, for both the American people and the international friends that we have participating in these events. So that's this. So we, we also understand that these events are supported by critical infrastructure. So we find it imperative that we work with various partners to ensure we understand the risk and help our partners plan accordingly. Right. So I, I think they, in a collaborative approach, um, are, we're open to discussing with CISA and other agencies and whether they're local um, whether local agencies or even private sector um, or industry partners to kind of um, to have this moment of, of collaboration and just kind of work into scenarios how we would um, exercise certain processes in order to mitigate or prevent an, um, any type of risk. Yeah, it strikes me that an event like the Super Bowl it touches so many different things. You know, there's obviously there's the the, the event itself, and there's there's people there, and so we have to look out for their safety. But you know, there's the stadium, which requires electricity, and there's transportation, and there's uh, points of national pride where you know we, we could imagine our adversaries wanting to take advantage of the of how widely viewed this is. Can you give us an idea of what goes into planning when you have something of this massive scope like the Super Bowl? It's hard for me to imagine anything larger or more high profile. Yeah, great question, David. And as we kind of look at our, you know, our responsibilities and and um, CISA um, is is a very unique agency. And as I mentioned with uh, just a second ago, you know, we're we are the agency that that is the operational lead for federal cybersecurity. Um, and at that, um, we're a coordinator for for critical infrastructure security and, res- and resilience. So, um, as we as we kind of provide those resources and the services, we do a significant amount of outreach. Um, more and more partners leverage CISA and our resources in order to provide um, you know to provide additional value to mitigating risk within their organizations or their locations. So, with that being said, a lot of our a lot of our agency has decentralized from Washington, D.C., and now we have 10 regional offices throughout the United States. And what's interesting about these re- regional offices are that the, um, the disciplines that reside within those regional offices touch on cybersecurity. They touch on physical security, um, chemical security, and emergency communications. And we do a, a significant amount of collaboration within our particular region. So as an example... CISA Region 9 are responsible, we're responsible for the states of California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the entire Pacific. With that being said, we have a number of physical cybersecurity, emergency communication advisors, as well as chemical security advisors, all deployed to the what we say the field or deployed out into different states and counties and cities. They're typically um, they're typically employees that we've hired into the federal government from those local areas that have great connections and have education and and certifications required to maintain relationships with different uh, private sector and public sector entities. Those that collaboration and that relationship has allowed um, us to message the importance of collaboration. So when we're looking at these type of events, you can it's it kind of quickly. Uh, understood the value that an agency would bring in providing, um, you know, additional assistance, additional visibility, uh, additional information, and 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 an understanding of what we're seeing trending as a potential risk throughout the United States. That add value to an organization, whether they're private or industry, speaks for itself, right? Especially in the in the nature that we're 
we're dealing with the with the threat landscape we have been both on the cyber and physical side for a number of years now. So I think we're you know as we're looking at those partner sets, they become that much more attracted to um, working with our agency and and collaborating with other private sector partners. And as as it pertains to these type of events or or working very closely in order to mitigate risk, there's definitely a um, there's definitely a collaborative approach that that's very attractive for for all partners. And hence I think we're we get a good showing when we have these type of events with a private and public sector where we have a we have a uh, event where we can cross collaborate. What's your message to folks who aren't operating at, at the scale or uh, level of someone like the NFL? You know, a, a, an organization that's in, uh, you know, one of the 50 states and, and perhaps has a, a manufacturing facility or, or you know, something of, of moderate scale, uh, think that they may want to reach out and start a relationship with CISA. Uh, is that something that you're looking to encourage? Oh, we encourage it all the time. And the fact that we work for this example that we used earlier with the NFL, we work with um, organizations that vary in all kinds of sizes, whether they're private or public. We work through, you know, through K through 12 and cities and counties. We work with critical infrastructure such as water and wastewater. Um, we work a number of, of state partners as well as private sector partners. So as we look at smaller organizations that are looking to leverage resources that the federal government provides for free. So as in this case, a tabletop exercise, we facilitate those resources and, and to our partner sets across the board. So we'd heavily encourage our partners, if they're interested, to definitely reach out to the CISA reps that we do have in the field, or they can go to our website at CISA.gov to identify who those points of contact might be in the respective state. I'd like to make a quick note and that we're going into Cyber Awareness Month. Um, so on September 29th today, CISA officially kicks off our 20th Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So throughout October, the month of October, CISA and our cooperative agreement recipients, the National Cybersecurity Alliance, will focus on ways to secure our world. We educate individuals and organizations on how to stay safe online. So this is a collaborative effort between government and industry um, to enhance cybersecurity awareness on a national and global scale. We're trying to um, build off of last year's message that is using strong passwords and password managers, uh, turning on uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, recognizing and reporting phishing, and finally updating software. So we're building off that strong message. And as we look at CISA, what we're, what we're trying to do is help shape behavior um, and, and uh, behavioral change by adopting and improving ongoing cybersecurity habits that reduce risk while online or on a connected device. So I would encourage our, our, our stakeholders, our partners, the listeners, um, to find out more about Cybersecurity Awareness Month at cisa.gov forward slash cybersecurity dash awareness dash month. And with that being said, David, that's what I would like to get out to the team or, or, or to the listeners. So thank you very much for this opportunity. We are very appreciative for your time. Joe, what do you think? I like that Joseph starts this discussion with a definition of the tabletop exercise. It gives mm. you an outline of what it, what it is and what goes on there. Right. Uh, that's, that's helpful. Uh, also good to hear that CISA will coordinate these and do them for free with you. <laughs> yeah. uh, at least if you're the NFL. If you're the NFL. Right. <laughs> yeah. If, if, you, if you're the organization running the single most uh, watched sporting event in the nation. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. nationally. And... and Large, uh, large audience globally as well. Sure, sure. Uh, practicing for an incident is important. You need to do this uh, with some kind of outside uh, organization running the tabletop exercise, whether that be CISA or some contractor skilled in this type of thing. Yeah. Uh, I would say that if you are part of the uh, either the, the, the cybersecurity leadership in a large organization, you need to be doing this two times a year at least. Mm. That would be my estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I know though? <laughs> uh, the NFL tends to have uh, tends to have large these large events, right? Sure. Like, like the Super Bowl, which is a great example. It's a high profile event. Like you said, it's viewed by lots of people. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just that. Every week there are fifteen to sixteen games, 
and there are cameras on all of it. You know, right. the NFL is above everything else an entertainment organization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's where they make their bread and butter is the fact that they have people locked into this sport that sit there and watch the TV uh, religiously every Sunday yeah. uh, or Monday or Thursday. Um, <laughs> and I'll confess that that I have family members that do this. With, yeah, um, me too. But, uh, and I'll also confess that I have other sports that I'm like that with, right? Like <laughs> okay. I'm not missing any of the Rugby World Cup games this weekend. All right. So this makes all of these games, just the number of eyeballs on, on the TV screen or in person, make all of these games a target for some kind of attack, mm-hmm. right? And if you think of uh, that giant, imagine if I gained control of that giant TV in AT&T Stadium in Dallas. Uh, my wife has actually been to a game in Dallas. Mm. And one of the things she said was, I couldn't look away from the TV or I had to force myself to look away from the big giant TV and watch the field, watch the game on the field. Oh. <laughs> because, I mean, this thing is huge, Dave. I right. don't know if right. you've ever seen it, but... I've only seen it on TV. Right, yeah. yeah. It, my wife says it's imposing. I didn't go to the game with her because I didn't want to pay $350 for a ticket to go see a game. <laughs> okay. Not a football game. Anyway. Right. I might pay that for a rugby game. Who knows? One day I might do that. Anyway, this stadium holds 80,000 people. Yeah. Uh, and and with a screen that you can't keep your eyes off of, imagine how, well, humorous it would be. Mm. Let's say it's a it's a mischievous prank, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And not, not something horrible. If, if something funny were to start playing on that that the uh, NFL or the Dallas Cowboys didn't endorse, right? right. Somebody got control of that. You, you wouldn't be able to look away from it. You wouldn't be able to get it off camera. You know, you couldn't do any of the wide field shots because mm-hmm. that screen is always on camera. I mean, it's 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 a great target. Yeah. So, yeah, run these kind of exercises like this. Mm. Uh, understand what's going to happen. Um, I like that Joseph was talking about how they build relationships with these organizations so that uh, or- other organizations can use them when they need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's It seems to me like he's doing a really good job of networking all these different uh people and groups together. Right. And uh, by the way, Dave, that was a good question you asked about smaller organizations, small to medium-sized organizations. And Joseph says he welcomes them to reach out to CISA as well. I mean, maybe they don't have the resources to do a tabletop exercise with everybody, but they probably have some kind of resource you can use at some level. Yeah. And they also, they also want to be able to track the incident. So even if they can't handle your situation personally or, or whatever, you know, it, it's never a bad thing to have a relationship with these organizations. Yeah, you, you, and the big thing the... about CISA is they are the left of boom organization. You right, know? right. The, uh, they want to help you prevent these kind of attacks from happening yeah. or to be prepared for when they do happen. Uh, a lot of times, once you experience an event, that's not when you call CISA. That's when you call law enforcement. Right, um, But. Right. You call CISA to help you prevent that event or to prepare for that event. Yeah, and and certainly when it comes to the federal government, CISA is leading that charge. Yeah, and, and by all accounts, uh, doing a good job. Yeah, it's one of the one of the things that is going well. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Joseph Oregon for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.